Well, good morning. I have a clock here, so I will help myself from not going too long. Um, the more I get into First Peter, the more it is so jam-packed full uh, of just things that we need to hear. We can't cover everything in a sermon, and our, our lesson this morning is no different. So turn with me, if you would, to our lesson from First Peter chapter 2. We're continuing our sermon series through this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians who were experiencing cultural and social pressure to give up their allegiance to King Jesus. And in this sense, and in this series, we want to hear God's voice. Right? Every time we come to the scriptures, that's what we're doing. We want to hear the address of God, hear the voice of God to his people. And so this morning is no different. In this series is no different. We want to hear the voice of God especially concerning what it means for us to be Christians in today's world and how we are to live as Christians in a culture and a society that increasingly regard Christianity as foreign, as alien to itself, its cherished values and priorities, and its honored agendas and goals. As Orthodox Christians who seek to believe and live out what God reveals in Scripture, what the churches what the church has always and everywhere believed and practiced, we will increasingly feel out of place in the broader culture as well, and even at times among other Christians who may accommodate in varying degrees to the values and priorities, agendas, and goals of the dominant emerging post-Christian culture that we live within. So how do we faithfully live? How do we faithfully live as Christians amid these rapidly changing cultural and social mores. Well, our lesson this morning from 1 Peter gives us several insights that help us to come to an understanding of what it is, what it means to be a Christian in today's world. And particularly when we come to Jesus by faith, giving him our allegiance and our love and our loyalty, three things are true. Three things happen. We receive an honored and privileged identity. This is the second part of uh, this is the end of, of Peter's first part of his ser sermon or his letter. And this whole first part, he's been focusing on the identity of Christians, beginning with you are born again to a living hope, and now you are spiritual houses, a holy priesthood. So that's that first thing. The second one is that we can expect to suffer in some measure the pain of rejection that Jesus suffered. That's something that's going to happen when we come to Jesus by faith. And then lastly, we will receive an exalted, or we do receive an exalted calling, a vocation. Now, each of these insights into how we are to live as Christians today hang on our being united and identified with Jesus. Did you hear it there in verse 4? Notice how it begins. As you come to him, the living stone. As you come to him. So how do we come to him? Look at verse 6. How do we come to Jesus? For it stands in Scripture, and he's quoting from Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Right? That's the living stone. That's Jesus. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So how do we come to Jesus? We come to him by faith. We come to the cornerstone, this precious and chosen cornerstone by God, of God by faith. That means that we confess him to be the crucified and risen king, believing that God raised up his dead body 
to new bodily life after having died a slave's death out of sheer love. Out of sheer love for his father and obeying his father. Now sheer love for you and I. Having faith in Jesus also entails being faithful to him. That is being loyal, giving him our love and our total allegiance in all areas of our life. A king expects nothing less. So when we believe that Jesus is the king of the universe who died for us and whom God raised from the dead, and when we give him our love and allegiance and when we come to him, we are so thoroughly united to him that what is true of him is now true of us. Peter's entire passage here, his thought here, depends on that. All that we are as Christians, whether it's in relationship to God or in relationship to the culture and societies in which we live, all that we are as Christians is based completely on who Jesus is. It rests completely on who Jesus is. And so the three insights that Peter offers us here all hang on this truth. And indeed, when we, when we were baptized, when, when we have a baptism here at Christ Church, we were reminded of that reality, that we are so thoroughly identified with Jesus that we actually die. And we are raised to new life in him. That same resurrection life that God raised him to, we are raised to. Okay, so let's look at that first insight. When we come to Jesus, we receive an honored and privileged identity, one as God's spiritual house and two as his holy priesthood. And we don't have time to go into verse 9, which lists many other titles for us. A nation, a holy nation, a a royal priesthood, a people, his own people, a people who have been marked by mercy. Okay? We're just going to focus on these two. So spiritual house. We encounter here in Peter this imagery of a stone, a cornerstone, a rock of offense. And the the stone imagery of the the Old Testament represented God's kingdom. That's Daniel chapter 2. You might remember that when uh, Daniel is in Nebuchadnezzar's court, he has this dream of an image, an idol made of all these different materials, and they're segmented. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay, and he sees a stone that's cut from a mountain, but it says one that is not fashioned by human hands, and it's hurled at this image which represents the kingdoms, all the kingdoms of of humankind, and this stone shatters them to pieces. And it says that this rock, this stone will endure forever, and this stone is the kingdom of God. Okay, so the stone imagery, we have, it represents God's kingdom in the Old Testament. And then we also have the cornerstone imagery that we heard here, that we, we hear represented in Isaiah and Psalm 118 that are quoted in our passage today. And that imagery is of a cornerstone, one of the cornerstone, the walls of Jerusalem, but then also the temple, the center of Israelite identity and worship, the, the nexus of where God was at work in the world, the center of activity. And then if we're following the scripture's thought here, we come to the Gospels. We come to the Gospels, and then we hear Jesus making these outlandish claims. I am the stone. Through me, the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in heaven. I am the cornerstone that you are rejecting, but one that God has chosen. 
and is precious in His sight. In Him, in Jesus, the kingdom of God will be established over every square inch of this earth and over every human kingdom. He is the chief cornerstone upon which the city, the new Jerusalem, and the temple, the new temple of God, are built. He is the center of God's redeeming and creating activity in this world. But then if we keep following the progression of Scripture, we come to Peter this morning in chapter 2. And Peter does something equally radical with the stone imagery from the Old Testament. Peter takes this and says that what is true about Jesus is true about you. He's a living stone. You are now living stones. He is a living stone. And now all those who come to him are living stones that God is using to build a new temple, a spiritual house for his presence. That image there of a house is, it likely has the main focus is of a building, of a, of a temple, but then also it has the broader aspect of a dynasty or a lineage, a, a family even. This is the, this is what we, you like yogurt, this is oikos. This is your, you know, your favorite yogurt. Just look, hook onto that. Whenever you, whenever you buy uh, Oikos yogurt, think of this, that God is building you into his new temple, okay? Seriously, buy, buy the, that yogurt, I guess, and remind yourself constantly of this truth. But these are stunning words, beautiful words. They are elevating and honoring words beyond imagination for the people that are receiving them. In one sentence, Peter grasps the entire wealth of Israel's identity and applies it not only to Jesus, but to any man, to any woman, to any child who comes to Jesus in faith. Remember, Peter is writing to people who are being marginalized and shamed because of their loyalty to Jesus. They went from being the insiders of their culture to the outsiders. But now, by way of a single metaphor, metaphor, Peter proclaims that they are at the very heart and center of God's redeeming and creating activity in the world. Can you, can, do you see how that is, an, that is an uplifting thing for these folks? It's an elevating thing. You're being shamed by the culture around you. No worries. You are God's temple. You are his spiritual house. It's a remarkable image. Christ Church is not this building. It is this group of people gathered to worship the one true and living God. That's the church. That's a spiritual house. So look at the person next to you. I mean, seriously, look at them. They are a living stone. They are a living stone that God is using to build his spiritual house. They're worthy. They're honorable. Shame has no place in their life. Has no place in your life. I want you to look at them again and tell them that they are honored by God. Do it. 
You are honored by God. Christ Church, if we just constantly remind ourselves of this reality that God has chosen us, just like he chose Jesus, we are precious to him, beloved children of his, that we are honored by him. Man, we don't have to worry about what everyone else around us is thinking. We don't have to worry about the shade they're throwing on us. We don't have to worry about social shame or stigma because we know that we are connected to the God of creation. But it's not only that. We're not merely representative of God's place in the world, which is now scattered all over creation. We, are also, we also serve as God's priests before the world. Not only me, but you are the priests of God in this world. Now, Peter applies this to us. We are his holy priest, whom he has set apart in the world to image, to reflect his presence through our transformed lives. And given the fact that he's using social imagery, a household, a priesthood, a nation, a people, this is what is an entire culture is made up of. Every aspect of our lives, not just a religious little nugget here, but every bit of it is meant to be priestly ministry for us as we display the reality of the grace of God in his new creation power in our lives, in this world, in our homes, in our vocations, in our civic lives together. So to participate at the center of what he is doing, this is what we're doing. We're participating at the center of what he is doing to redeem this world and to refashion it into his new creation kingdom. So we have an enormous privilege of having this relationship with our creator God that restores us in his image. Listen to verses 6 and 7 again. The, the privileged place you have. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Now remember, we are everything that Jesus is now. We are chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. No shame permitted here. See, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Do you see that when you turn to Jesus Christ in faith and trust, when he wins our heart and our loyalty, the honor that God the Father gives to God the Son is moved on to you. You are honored as he is honored. If you are a Christian, you are chosen by God, you are precious to God. And look there at the end of verse 6, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's amazing. That's amazing. Those who believe in Jesus will escape shame. It's been plaguing us since Genesis 3. But it no longer has a place in our lives. We've been delivered from shame, healed of it. And that's a part of our priestly ministry as God's people is to live in this world free of shame. Free from the shame of sin and free from the shame the unbelieving fallen world would cast upon us for following the king. 
We are free from that, that bondage. Okay, that's the first insight that Peter gives us. He's encouraging his, his, his listeners, he's encouraging us this morning to be honored, to know that fact that you have an identity rooted in Christ as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. But second, when we come to Jesus, we can expect to suffer in some measure the rejection that Jesus suffered. Peter doesn't sugarcoat it. Being united with Jesus, giving our love and our loyalty to him, will also bring pain and suffering. Go back to verse 4. Look there if you have it open. Notice that Jesus Christ was what? Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And precious. And this sets up a polarity that runs through the entire passage. Jesus was rejected, dishonored, and shamed by the world. And those who give their love and loyalty to him, to Jesus, share in this same fate. Honored by God, rejected by men. Honored by God, shamed by the world. Honored by God, rejected by the world. We can even go back to chapter 1, verse 1. These Christians are described as elect exiles of the dispersion. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, they're described as sojourners and exiles. They're aliens. Now, both of these descriptions are pointing to an essential characteristic of what it's like to be a Christian even today. And that is this, that we are not at home in this fallen world. This is not our home. We are homesick. And just like anyone who's homesick, who's an immigrant in another country, you want to attach yourself, you want to hold on to those things that remind you of where you came from and who you are. Who are my people? Who are my family? What's my language? Don't want to lose who I am. To be a Christian is to have declared allegiance to a different homeland than the one we live in. And the people we live among who have not declared their absolute allegiance to King Jesus, they know we can't be depended upon to see everything their way. And that we can't be depended upon to support and contribute to some of the key values and agendas that they have. For example, we cannot be dependent upon when it comes to some of the central concerns of our culture regarding sex and gender. These are the hot topics. They're not ones that we necessarily want to talk about I'd love to move on. But these are the ones that are foisted upon us constantly. These are the fundamental issues that God's people have very frequently been out of step with the culture that we live in. A few years ago, this is an example, a few years ago, Janelle Monet, an actress self-identified as pansexual, which was applauded by many of the cultural elites in our society. But God's people follow a strict sexual ethic that leaves no leeway. No principle of tolerance for different opinions on the subject. God has given sex to us as a gift, but it can only be expressed in a responsible and healthy and life-giving way when it is between a man and a woman in marriage, who are married together. All other manifestations of sex are dehumanizing dehumanizing. Sexual holiness isn't just a rule, an arbitrary commandment. It is part of what it means to turn from idols and to serve the living and true God. 
is a part of what it means to be a genuine, image-bearing human being. That's why it's not just a matter of opinion. In all of creation, the image of man and woman together in marriage is the one sign of the gospel that God wrote into the fabric of creation. And there are plenty of other issues that allegiance to Jesus makes you out of step with in this culture. Take abortion, for example. From the very beginning of Christianity, God's people have been publicly, vocally, and seriously opposed to abortion. And if you've had an abortion, part of your growing up in Christ will involve coming to see your abortion as murder and bringing that crushing guilt to God who gives you mercy. Who gives you forgiveness, who gives you grace without measure. We all need to know that no matter what we've done, God accepts us and gives us his mercy when we come seeking his forgiveness. It knows no end. And the list goes on and on for us. It's not only what we do with our bodies, it's what we do with our money and with our time. It's what we believe about reality and life after death and so many other things that separate us and set us apart as unique and distinct in this culture. And while there was a time in America where being a Christian gave you a positive status boost in many places and in many sectors of our society, that has changed and is changing rapidly. We live in a moment very much like the people Peter was writing to where there isn't necessarily an official persecution, but instead we're dealing with is verbal and social, verbal and social shaming. We are viewed as unreasonable. We are viewed as antisocial. We're experiencing the slow-working, malignant cancer of social opposition. And this may be this may seem to be trivial as a form of suffering, but to Peter's way of thinking, the stakes are much higher. They're much higher. This is because testing comp uh, comprises a crisis of decision. Testing comprises a crisis of decision, of faithfulness, of outcome, since it is at one and the same time the opportunity for the refiner's fire to carry out its work of purifying faith, you already have reference to that earlier in chapter 1. But it's also an opportunity for the diabolic forces, the dark forces of this fallen world to wrestle God's people away from faith and allegiance to Jesus. So Peter can say in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, I think in that he's saying, I know this is not easy. I know this is hard. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That's the Christian life. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Okay, those are two insights. Let's do a third insight, but we'll be quick here. Insight three is that when we come to Jesus, we receive an exalted calling, an exalted calling. Look with me at the end of verses five and at the end of verse nine, or verse five and verse nine. 
but we become a, a, a holy priesthood so that we can, we can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, pro, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? Certainly, we need to tell people the story of Jesus, and that's a huge part of it. That's something really actually happened when Jesus died and rose from the dead. And as a result of which the devil and any dark and deadly forces, they no longer have any actual authority in this world. The prison stands open. There's an icon of the resurrection where Jesus is breaking into the underworld and he's pulling up out of the graves Adam and Eve. The prison of death stands open. And you are free to leave. Just turn around from your enslaving idols to worship and serve the living God, and you will be forgiven. You will receive personal forgiveness from the one true and living God. That's the story. That's the gospel story of Jesus. But Peter's calling us something beyond that as well. Not, nothing less than that, but something more than that. In this letter, there's another way. The kingdom of God, the sovereign rule of the one true God on earth as it is in heaven, will come through suffering witness. As we live out the total way of life of God's kingdom, that is the culture of God's kingdom, as we live this heavenly culture out amid the fallen cultures of this world, we will experience suffering. Peter tells us that's a part of us being united to Jesus, the suffering servant. So as we live out the culture of God's kingdom in our homes, our families, our marriages, in our vocations, our workplaces, and in our civic life together, we will suffer in some measure the rejection that Jesus suffered. I mean, that's a promise to you. Remember, though, we're honored. Don't lose sight of that. We're honored. We're precious to God. He loves us so much so that he's willing to identify us with himself. So in other words, suffering is not simply something through which the faithful must pass to get to their final destination. It is in itself the way in which the dark powers that have ruled the world will exhaust themselves. Will exhaust themselves. It's the way in which the victory won by Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection will be implemented in this world. It's through your faithfulness to Jesus, bearing whatever the cost it may bring to you in this world. The way in which the victory won by Jesus on the cross is implemented in the world through the lives of those who are God's spiritual house and priesthood. In closing, look with me again at verse 6. In this you rejoice, Peter says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials. For a little while, it has an end. It's not something that lasts forever. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ as the world's true king, we are locked in a power struggle, and it is dangerous and unpleasant, calling for vigilance and for all the defensive equipment that the gospel gives us. And we need to know that the dark powers, the principalities, are able to strike back. They have no authority, but they're still there. But even this, God will take up. Your suffering, God will take up 
and use as he used the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't this what Paul tells us in Colossians? That I and my sufferings are filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And in the weeks ahead, as we get into Peter, we're going to encounter that concept of suffering over and over again. In the weeks ahead, we'll see how our response to suffering, shame, and marginalization makes up our witness to the risen King Jesus and his kingdom that is coming on earth as it is in heaven. Christ Church, we're not going through this to beat war drums. We all need to be ready to be faithful, to be unwavering. Just as Peter ends his letter, I've written all these things so that you might stand firm in the true grace of God. That's my heart for you. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We see this opposition between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men. This is not so that we can like, na-na-na-na-boo-boo, you're evil, you're horrible. This is out of love so that we might live a life that bears witness to the transforming truth of the gospel. And so we hold it With that love, that same kind of love that drove Jesus to the cross. And it's with that love that we can't participate in everything. We can't get our behind everything. It's not because we're just curmudgeons. You are honored. You are precious. You are beloved by God. He chose you. Live for him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.